Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. My friends, nothing feels better than being able to enjoy rich, smooth, creamy chocolate and knowing you're doing something good for your body. Unprocessed chocolate called cacao is rich in theobromides and PEAs, which are neuroactive alkaloids that boost the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins in your brain, which make you feel alive and well. In addition, cacao is rich in polyphenols, including EGCG. In fact, it's more potent than green tea in that powerful polyphenolic antioxidant. And that improves the inflammatory process. It helps induce autophagy, where your body literally starts to heal and repair itself. And also, that protects you from oxidative stress. Now, my favorite brand of cacao powder is Cacao Bliss which starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, which allows them to maintain the integrity of their powerful health benefits. Then they take the cacao and they blend it with turmeric, one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory herbs. They use MCT oil, which helped uh, help turn into ketones quickly in your system. They use coconut, they use Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper, and they sweeten it with monk fruit for the perfect blend that tastes fantastic and helps balance and stabilize your blood sugar. Now, these ingredients, they enhance your mood, your memory, and your mindset, and they really help you experience pure bliss when you consume them, and that's why they call it cacao bliss. So if you're a chocolate lover, a superfood enthusiast like me, or someone who wants to experience life at a higher level, I invite you to try them out. You can get cacao bliss at this website, eartheecofoods.com forward slash David Jockers. That's Earth. Echo or E C H O foods.com forward slash David Jockers and use the coupon code, just my first name, David, to get 15% off of your order. Cacao Bliss is a low carb, gluten free, GMO free, vegan, paleo, and keto friendly superfood powder that you can put in protein shakes. You can throw it in some almond milk, coconut milk. You can replace your coffee with it if you like. You can put it in different baked goods. A lot of people will use it to make different chocolate fat bombs, chocolate muffins, chocolate protein shakes. So try it out today. Again, eartheecofoods.com forward slash David Jockers and use the coupon code David to save 15% off today. 
Hey friends, this podcast is actually an interview that I did a few years ago for a project I worked on called the Keto Edge Summit. The Keto Edge Summit was basically where I interviewed, I think it was like 36, 40 of the top keto experts in the world. We talked about all things keto. We talked about how to get the best results out of the diet. We talked about biohacking strategies to do to help improve your digestive system, to help improve your brain health, your energy, and really get the most out of life. And so this interview is with one of my good friends who is an expert in many different areas. And you'll see as we, as we dive into this topic just uh, just how deep we go and the quality of the content that you get. And so just a reminder, this is uh, roughly, you know, this is, I think I did these interviews in like 2017, 2018, so a few years old, but uh, the content is just as relevant and uh, I know that it will make a difference in your life. So you will enjoy this content. And uh, if you wouldn't mind just leaving us a rating or review, your reviews really, really count. They mean the world to us and they help us get seen by more people. So if you just go to your Apple iTunes player and uh, rate us and leave a review, that will really help us uh, just be able to help more people and get this information out to the masses. Thank you for doing that and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Keto Edge Summit where we are dispelling the myths and helping empower you to improve your brain and your body through the ketogenic lifestyle. I'm your host, Dr. David Jockers, and I'm excited about our guest today. He has been a mentor from afar uh, for quite a long time. I've read several of his books, and um, he's just really put out some of the best content when it comes to moving healthcare forward and helping bring out just the awareness of sugar, grains, and uh, blood sugar imbalances and its effect on our brain and our body and really how ketones can be an incredible therapeutic strategy, um, really this ketogenic lifestyle for improving our brain, helping to um, prevent neurological disorders and helping us to, to really function, heal at our peak potential. And so this is Dr. David Perlmutter and uh, he is a, he's called the empowering neurologist. So he's got an MD and he's specialized in uh, neurology and also he's written, he's, he's most well known really for his writings. He's got several, well I know for sure one New York Times bestseller. Do you have more than that, Doc? Actually there are four. Four New York Times bestselling uh, uh, books, so I think that that's definitely the record for this summit. Um, the Grain Brain was uh, sold over a million copies, uh, so Grain, grain Brain and uh, also The Brain Maker which really talked about the microbiome and its effect on brain health. And so um, he's also got cookbooks and all kinds of awesome stuff. And uh, so just welcome to the Keto Edge Summit, Dr. David. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Dr. Jockers, for having me. Yeah, it's really a, a privilege and an honor. You know, I've been following you from afar, read a lot of your content, and uh, have really implemented that when I'm working with patients and also in the content that I put out on the internet. So I just appreciate everything that you've done for, um, for healthcare and for the natural health world. All right, and so let's jump into this. I know obviously you're a neurologist, so you've got this background as an MD, um, and, and what inspired you to become a neurologist, and how did you come about functional medicine and nutrition? How did that kind of get in your path? I began uh, involving myself in the neurosciences at a really young age. My father was a neurosurgeon, and 
I have to say that was pretty much his entire life. So, you know, I, I learned that in order to approach my dad, I had to kind of uh, become interested in brain science because that was the only real platform that we, we could share. <clears throat> so I would be in the operating room when I was 13, 14 years old, watching him do take out brain tumors, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I, in medical school, I was really very deeply involved in, in research at that point. Uh, I began publishing neurological uh, literature when I was a junior in college, actually. We were doing a lot of research on the anatomy of the brain back then. So um, after medical school, I went and did my neurology uh, residency. And then I actually went out and practiced in a mainstream neurology group uh, for 10 years. And towards the end of that time, I was hugely dissatisfied with the idea of basically diagnose and adios, meaning, you know, we were really great at making terrific diagnoses as obscure as they might be. Uh, and we're supposed to pat ourselves on the back by making a diagnosis, but I didn't think we were really helping a lot of people. So, you know, it was about then, that was probably 26, 27 years ago, uh, that I began to realize that there was a lot of literature starting to appear uh, that correlated various lifestyle uh, issues and risk for neurologic disease. So taking uh, us away from the idea of treating, for example, dementia, and actually beginning to think about how we could prevent it. How mm -hmm. might our lifestyle choices be looked upon in terms of whether they represented a threat or paved the way for a better brain? Uh, at about that time, I needed to leave my mainstream group uh, great doctors, terrific doctors. I'm still very much in touch with them, but I needed to go off on my own and, uh, you know, sink or swim, as it were, and uh, began exploring how lifestyle issues would influence the brain's destiny. And realized, again, there was a lot of literature out there already. And I began to implement these types of ideas into my practice, uh, talking to people in a neurology practice about the food that they ate and the supplements that they took, how they slept, and how much exercise they got. And, you know, I began seeing that we were affecting change in a positive way. So I began to interact with other integrative slash functional types of doctors back then and began to cultivate these relationships that continue to this day of other like-minded individuals who really felt the need, I think, to push the envelope and, and really uh, explore areas that were not and remain not considered part of the mainstream. Yeah, and so as an MD, obviously you were really an early adopter in this kind of lifestyle medicine approach. And when did you come across the idea of ketones and the impact they could have on our, our brain and on our physio physiology? Well, I think that it was probably about uh, 15 years ago that we began seeing uh, research that related uh, longevity in animal species to caloric restriction uh, as in general. Uh, work uh, at the National Institute uh, on Aging, a work by Dr. Uh, Mark Matson, for example, uh, and then subsequent work by Dr. David Sinclair, uh, really revealed that there were some really interesting things happening uh, in animals uh, in whom calories were restricted, uh, both in terms of longevity and also in terms of uh, gene pathway activation. And I began to become quite interested in that. And uh, as time moved forward, we began to see that, you know, one of the issues that happens during fasting, 
uh, is ultimately you push the body into a state of burning fat as opposed to relying upon dietary sugar and carbohydrates or stored uh, sugar in the form of glycogen, which is actually depleted uh, in a day or so or up to three days. And we began seeing that, you know, it, it looks as if one of the major things that happens when we restrict individuals is we push them into ketosis. So that caused us to uh, begin to look at ketosis from a mechanistic perspective, what's happening uh, when the body begins to use dietary fat uh, and more importantly, stored body fat uh, as a fuel source. What are the changes that happen and why are so many of these changes salubrious? Why are they actually opening the door for health and even helping to reverse diseases? So that's when that literature started to really evolve and people, you know, a, a PhDs began dedicating their lives to this type of uh, research. Uh, and so many of them have appeared, Dr. D'Agostino at uh, University of South Florida, for example, one of the leaders, Dr. Thomas Seyfried, exploring how ketosis can be uh, an augmented type of therapy along with uh, an adjunctive type of therapy along with other forms of therapy for cancer. And uh, Katie, bar the door. I mean, so many researchers are now uh, deeply involved in looking at the nuts and bolts of ketosis, both its implementation and its downstream effects, uh, that it really has taken us to a very pivotal moment, which happened just a couple of weeks ago, appearing as the lead article in the Journal of the American Medical Association of all wow. You know, a powerful perspective article mm -hmm. talking about the role of a ketogenic diet in both managing type 2 diabetes as well as in weight loss. That's, it, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. But to open up the Journal of the American Medical Association and see that article on, you know, it's the first article for all of us who've been kind of pushing our way through uh, understanding and implementing ketogenic diets. This was a big day. This is a huge day. Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet. So thanks for pointing that out. Definitely check that out. And yeah, the research has really been evolving. We've got more and more things coming out every single day. Last year was a huge year for studies on it. So really awesome stuff. And we'll dive into that a little bit more detail. But you know, first I want to dive into your 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 first really huge hit that at least where where I found out about you, which was the grain, which was grain brain. And so let's dive into the idea of um, grains and their impact on our blood sugar and just our overall brain brain health. Certainly. And, you know, let me preface this by saying that, um, you know, someone have the, uh, the idea that Dr. Perlmutter is totally against all grains hmm. and that eating grains is going to cause terrible things to happen to you, like your children will be born naked or something horrible <laughs> will happen. Um, in actuality, you know, there are some detrimental issues we should talk about as they relate to grains in general. But more specifically, I think, uh, that there are a group of grains, wheat, barley, and rye, that do contain a type of protein called gluten that has its own set of consequences that I think are really relevant uh, for general health and certainly play a role in brain health as well, and we'll explore that. But the other issue about a grain-based diet, especially a diet that favors these highly processed or modified grains, is that it has a powerfully detrimental effect upon uh, blood sugar regulation. Mm -hmm. And that uh, really is the reason I would write a book 
uh, called Grain Brain because we've learned, and as I, as I made very clear in Grain Brain five years ago, that uh, blood sugar regulation is pivotal as it relates to the destiny of your brain. Uh, that probably the most important biometric that determines whether you will or won't become an Alzheimer's patient is what your fasting blood sugar is today. So, you know, that was, uh, there wasn't a huge amount of literature that, at that time, five years ago. Uh, I'm just finishing the manuscript on the five-year revision of Grain Brain. And the very uh, empowering part of that has been for me that it's been very validating of our earlier contentions. That so much more literature has come out to, to, to indicate that yes, um, there's this powerful relationship between your blood sugar today and your risk of dementia tomorrow. Uh, we had preliminary data back in 2013, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, September 13th, 2013, a study that indicated in several thousand individuals who were followed close to seven years, having no study except a fasting blood sugar at the beginning of the, of the trial uh, that demonstrated that those individuals who had even very subtle elevations of their blood sugar demonstrated a dramatic increased risk for dementia at the conclusion of the study. Uh, those types of research uh, publications have been replicated and really hammer a, a powerful nail uh, into the idea uh, that there's this strong relationship. So the two major points that we developed in Grain Brain were uh, that blood sugar is fundamental for determining your brain's destiny, either good or bad, and that gluten was not a good thing to be eating. And that said, uh, as we discuss the latter, uh, you know, it, it's very important to differentiate that we are not talking specifically about something called celiac disease, mm -hmm. which is an autoimmune condition that may affect 1.6 to 1% of Americans. We're talking about detrimental effects of gluten and specifically a protein contained in gluten called gliadin, detrimental effects that that has on the gut lining and therefore uh, how that increases the permeability of the gut lining, which opens the door quite literally uh, to chemicals that lead to inflammation, recognizing that it's inflammation that is the mechanism that leads to brain degeneration in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS. Uh, it's inflammation that's the cornerstone of coronary artery disease, cancer, and diabetes. So it really throws a wide net when we talk about the effects of gluten in terms of human physiology and pathophysiology for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. And like you were saying, inflammation is the underlying marker in these sorts of neurodegenerative conditions. And we know Alzheimer's has also been labeled type 3 diabetes, and you touched on the impact of blood sugar on it. And so how do ketones, how can ketones make an impact when it comes to preventing Alzheimer's and also giving somebody that may have been diagnosed with it, Alzheimer's or dementia, improved quality of life? That's a very good question. <clears throat> and uh, let's just go back to this landmark publication in the Journal of the American Medical Association from just two weeks ago. And what they found was that a ketogenic diet was very powerful as it related to controlling blood sugar uh, and specifically in patients with type 2 diabetes. 
Why is that important? Because it relates directly back to our previous discussion about blood sugar being related to brain degeneration. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think that can we make the leap between saying that something might be a good treatment for the Alzheimer's brain also might be good for preventing that very disease. I'm very comfortable in that position because I think things that cause the brain to heal are likely to protect the brain in the first place. Are, those, uh, are there those who would criticize that uh, connection? And I would say certainly there are. Uh, but again, I think that when you look at programs that are designed to reverse Alzheimer's, as for example, described by Dr. Dale Bredesen in uh, The End of Alzheimer's, his uh, New York Times bestselling book, uh, I think we recognize that these are things good for the Alzheimer's brain that are also what we recommend to individuals who may be at risk or who may already be suffering from uh, early decline but not yet fully diagnosed as having dementia or senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Recently, as in uh, this week, uh, in the journal Neurology, which is perhaps the most well-respected neurology journal on the mm -hmm. planet, there was a, uh, a section dedicated to what should doctors do and recommend to their patients who have MCI, which means mild cognitive impairment. So that means that they are now testing as having some issues with cognition, but not bad enough to be diagnosed as having full-blown Alzheimer's. The reason it's important is because most of them are going to convert ultimately and become demented. So the question is, when you see this patient with MCI in your office, and they look you in the eye and they say, what can you do for me? What should I be doing right now, doctor? What the guidelines put out by the American Academy of Neurology told us last week was that there is no medication to be prescribed in this circumstance. Mm. Wow, I was, yeah. it was breathtaking. And further, that the only intervention that has been shown to reduce risk of dementia is physical exercise. Yowza, I mean, you have to understand, this is a journal that is supported by pharmaceutical uh, yeah. companies to advertise their drugs for the brain or whatever, and they were bold enough to speak the truth. I was, um, I was overwhelmed. Uh, I had to write a blog about it, of course. Actually, I did a video blog, I was so taken. But uh, the reality is that we are just really starting to see this widespread appreciation that our lifestyle choices, mm. including sleep, a diet, nutritional supplements, exercise, are the most powerful approaches to maintaining uh, brain health that we've ever known about. That there is nothing in the pharmacopoeia available for us as yet uh, that is going to be salubrious in terms of the brain. If there were a prescription, would I be writing it for people? You bet I would be. Uh, yeah. We don't have that. Uh, when we see billions of dollars being expended to find the cure for Alzheimer's disease, uh, I think that's all well and good, but it, it sort of pulls at my heartstrings when we see countless literature citations demonstrating that by and large, it's a preventable disease in the first place. That's what we should be talking about. So last month I was given the opportunity to speak to the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and uh, I got two hours to speak to the World Bank. Uh, it was broadcast to 150 sites around the world. My topic was the global epidemic of Alzheimer's disease, uh, what the future looks like, 
but through the lens of preventive medicine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I first at the World Bank, I had to talk dollars, uh, talked yeah. about that currently we are spending globally about a trillion dollars in caring for Alzheimer's patients. Wow. And that's more than the market value of Google or our Apple. Uh, and this situation is going to get much, much worse in decades to come. Yeah. And then I spent the rest of the time talking about how uh, our most well-respected peer-reviewed research is so clear that our lifestyle choices are so impactful in terms of changing a person's brain destiny. Mm -hmm. uh, even in those individuals who may be genetically predisposed to develop Alzheimer's disease who carry what's called the APOE4 allele. And that is perhaps 23% of Americans carry that, the, the so-called Alzheimer's gene. It is a predisposition, but it's in no way a determinant that you will or won't get a disease. And it's, you know, that's where we're moving. We're moving to a place of understanding, well, you know, I've got the, this legacy from mom and dad and who all came before me in my family, my lineage, but my lifestyle choices play one heck of a role, a yeah. powerful role uh, in uh, determining my health and my health destiny, even as it relates to my brain. And what that mentality does, it hits the ball back across the net to my side of the court, where I got to make these changes. I've got to learn this stuff and really uh, do things because it will impact my future. You know, yeah. some people say, well, I don't want to know if I do or don't carry the Alzheimer's gene, because if I have it, my, go my gosh, there's nothing I can do about it. I have that gene. And we recognize nothing is further from the truth. That ketogenic diet, or that physical exercise, and, and gluten-free, lowering sugar and carbs, these are important uh, changes that can absolutely rewrite your book. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such an empowering message that, hey, you know, our genes don't control our destiny. It's really the choices we make every day that do. And speaking of Alzheimer's disease, I know there's a lot of animal studies on basically a ketogenic lifestyle or ketones shutting down the neuroinflammasome and just reducing inflammation in the brain and having epigenetic changes in the brain. Um, how many human studies are out there? I know there's one that I've, I've looked at and sourced, 2009 study nutrition and metabolism where they took, you're probably familiar with that, 152 individuals and all they did was give them MCT, like it was double-blind uh, placebo-controlled study and so the, uh, the active group, they gave them MCT oil. That's it for three months. And they saw huge changes. And so well, with all respect, they weren't yeah. huge. Uh, the changes, uh, the, the functional changes that they observed were not huge. Not huge. Okay. Nor would you expect them to be in, in such a short trial, but yeah. it's a concept. And, yeah. uh, you know, but, and that plays upon uh, uh, certainly the animal studies that have been, I think, profound mm -hmm. in terms of salvaging the brain and in terms of uh, really uh, interventions uh, during uh, illness. Uh, the mouse model of Lou Gehrig's disease, for example, which is a mouse that has an alteration in a certain gene pathway that makes superoxide dismutase an antioxidant, uh, is very responsive to a ketogenic diet in terms of a preservation of motor function and longevity. Uh, the, uh, there's a very small proof of concept study in humans testing a ketogenic diet in Parkinson's disease, and this study was yeah. done 12 years ago, showing remarkable improvement uh, in uh, the most well-accepted uh, um, uh, test that is done to measure a patient's uh, ability to perform uh, motor activity, 
Uh, it's called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. It has multiple components that look at mo looks at motor functionality, uh, responsiveness or detrimental effects of medication, ability of an individual to maintain his or her activities of daily living, self hygiene, etc. A dramatic uh, lowering of the yeah. UPDRS score in individuals who were placed on a ketogenic diet. So these uh, uh, interventions are brought about because of the basic science, because of the laboratory uh, bench work, the animal work that demonstrates what happens during ketosis on brain cells in terms of uh, their ability to utilize uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate as one of the ketone bodies as a fuel, but also the role of this beta-hydroxybutyrate as a signaling molecule to reduce inflammation, upregulate antioxidant production, um, and reduce a free radical production by virtue of the fact that we're getting better production of energy molecules called ATP uh, far more efficiently with less production of the byproduct, the exhaust, if you will, which are, yeah. are the free radicals. So, um, you know, I think as we move forward, the challenge for me is to try to understand who we shouldn't use the ketogenic yeah. diet for. And I, you know, the, the one area that I thought, uh, one disease state was type one diabetes or, or right. insulin dependent diabetes until I recently interviewed a physician who's a type one diabetic and wrote a book about his personal experience using a ketogenic diet to treat his diabetes Mm -hmm. as well as now using it in his diabetes clinic and how he himself was able to reduce his insulin requirement by 50%. So, um, you know, very little is taken off the table in terms of when uh, we might want to implement a ketogenic diet. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. I've seen that clinically as well, working with a lot of type 1 diabetics. And, you know, we're told, hey, that's the individual that could be at risk for ketoacidosis. And so as long as it's managed and, you know, in a sense, I always say hey, type one diabetics, you definitely want a keto coach or somebody that's can help you medically manage it, but it can be this, the most effective strategy, you know, along with other lifestyle interventions like exercise, like you were talking about to help keep that under control and manage it effectively. And so let's talk about, um, so we've, we've touched on Alzheimer's, dementia, mild cognitive impairment, Parkinson's, and seeing, um, you know, some research that really is compelling that hey, this can be a great strategy for it. How about strokes and traumatic brain injuries? What have you seen out there as far as those go? Well, I'd say uh, first as it relates to stroke, um, I think, you know, as it would be with dementia, that it's not reasonable to look at one intervention in isolation. That, you know, when we look at, for example, um, the Israeli uh, research that looks at hyperbaric oxygen in dealing with strokes, yeah. uh, when you couple the idea of oxygenating the brain, enhancing mitochondrial function with enhancing mitochondrial function through provision of ketones through a ketogenic diet, I think you bring multiple arrows to bear. And I think it, it creates a you know a multidisciplinary approach uh, that I think is far more effective. I think uh, a ketogenic diet for a traumatic brain injury also makes sense. Uh, and you know as a matter of fact, one of the, the things we really like to push uh, in TBI has been, uh, along with hyperbaric oxygen, of course, has been very high levels of DHA, an omega-3 yeah. that uh, does good things in the brain, reduces inflammation, uh, enhances uh, certain gene transcription to help the growth of new brain cells. 
And those two things are not incompatible. Uh, pushing DHA along with uh, restricting sugar and carbohydrates and adding in uh, precursors like MCT oil, for example, uh, those are very compatible. So it's not as if our hands get tied. Yeah. So, uh, but again, the point I want to make is that I think um, in any of these uh, neurologic conditions, I mean, you know, truthfully, in our modern times, the first use therapeutically of the ketogenic diet happened in 1928 for the treatment of intractable seizures. So it was kind of buried thereafter in terms of any thoughts of application of ketosis for other neurological problems. But now we're seeing by all means uh, the you know, significant extension of, of its utility. And, you know, uh, just to get back to it being generally a good thing for the body and for the brain, you know, I think it's important to understand that humans have probably been uh, in a state of ketosis most of the time uh, over most of our existence on this planet. Yeah. You know, it's only been uh, in the last 10,000 years or so when we've uh, created agriculture that we've had these robust um, availability of carbohydrate resources that has, you know, really shifted the, the human diet to one that is carbohydrate-based as opposed to a fat-based. And as such, um, you know, that uh, even more recently is we've seen this uh, huge push to lowering dietary fat and further increasing carbohydrates in the past three or four decades that has absolutely served us no good whatsoever. Uh, we now recognize, based upon a study appearing in the Journal of the American Medical Association that was actually picked up by the New York Times uh, that medical literature, even in the late 1960s, uh, favoring higher sugar and carbs and you know, demonizing fat was uh, strongly uh, influenced by, uh, by industry, by uh, industry that wanted us to eat more sugar, uh, whether it's the sugar industry or the grain industry. And finally, that was revealed. And I think you know, now the notion of low fat is uh, certainly losing its uh, incredible cachet that it has had for the past three decades. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's exciting that this information is coming out now. And Guys, I just want to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite superfood chocolate powders. It's called Cacao Bliss. You see, cacao is unprocessed chocolate, and it is rich in neuroactive alkaloids that boost dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins. These are your feel-good neurotransmitters that really make you feel alive and well and it's also rich in polyphenols like EGCG, which we think about when we think of green tea. That helps protect your brain and your body from oxidative stress, helps you age more effectively and feel better than ever. And my favorite brand of cacao powder is Cacao Bliss because they use 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, which allows them to maintain their full integrity of powerful health benefits. They blend it with turmeric, one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory herbs on the planet. They put in MCT oil and coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper, and they sweeten it with monk fruit, which is an all-natural sweetener that does not impact your blood sugar. And those compounds like cinnamon, MCT oil, really help stabilize your blood sugar. So this is a fantastic powder you can put in 
almond milk, coconut milk. You can put it in your protein shakes. You can use it for baking. If you're making chocolate muffins or a chocolate cake or making a chocolate protein shake like I do almost every single day, this is a fantastic mix to throw in there. It's going to help enhance your mood, your memory, and your mindset and really help you experience pure bliss. That's why they call it cacao bliss. So guys, if you are a chocolate lover, maybe a superfood enthusiast, or just someone who wants to experience life at a higher level, I invite you to try out Cacao Bliss today. If you go to the website, earthechofoods.com forward slash David Jockers, let me spell that for you, E-A-R-T-H-E-C-H-O-F-O-O-D-S.com forward slash David Jockers. Use the coupon code David at checkout to get 15% off of the Cacao Bliss. And this is a low-carb, gluten-free, GMO-free, vegan, paleo, and keto-friendly superfood powder that you will love. So try that out today. Again, use the coupon code David at checkout, earthechofoods.com forward slash David Jockers. Use the coupon code David to get 15% off today. You know, touching on how you talked about really, I mean, our ancestors were in this state where they most of the time they were in ketosis. And even as agriculture developed, most cultures around the world incorporated fasting, whether it was due to, you know, food scarcity or religious or cultural traditions. In fact, many of the blue zones, I mean, they have cultural fasting built into their, their strategies. And of course, we use ketones when we fast. So um, they didn't know that, but they just, you know, it was part of their culture. And, not sure uh, whether they knew it or yeah. not. Um, sometimes we know things, uh, but it's not because we've necessarily read it in a book yeah. or experienced it. We know that things on a deeper level. And who knows uh, what happens to people when they fast that, you know, allows them uh, clarity. Uh, yeah. you know, whether it's Jesus fasting for 40 days, yeah. a Jewish fast of Yom Kippur, yeah. or the fast of Ramadan, you know, these are really very pervasive uh, events uh, across religious practices globally and historically. Uh, and one wonders if the perpetuation of the idea of fasting has happened because of what happens to people when they fast mm. in terms of developing clarity and rekindling their connection with areas of the brain that might otherwise uh, have been silenced by their diets. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And speaking on that, you know, we've touched on it in this interview, just how ketones have this kind of epigenetic effect where they affect our gene, gene transcription factors. And so what are we finding out as far as really how that works and how ketones can impact different uh, neurotransmitters and things like brain-derived neurotropic growth factor and just the overall um, genetic characteristics of the brain cells? Well, there are multiple mechanisms that are involved. I, I think, you know, certainly one area that's getting a lot of research now has to do with one of the ketone bodies, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, mm -hmm. Uh, acting as what we call, and I don't mean to be too technical, but a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Yeah. Uh, as such, um, it uh, affects these regulatory parts of genes, uh, proteins that are called histones, that allow a certain segment of DNA to either express itself or not. So we know that uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of the chemicals produced when an individual gets into ketosis or is available if a person's taking something like MCT oil, for example, uh, acts to change gene uh, expression 
uh, through that mechanism. We also understand that uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate um, stimulates receptors on certain cells that are called G-protein receptors that regulate intracellular events that have to do with cellular metabolism uh, that play a role, for example, in uh, autophagy or the availability of a cell to be uh, degraded if it's, if it's not functional that help to regulate the production of antioxidants and even in the, the process of inflammation. Uh, beyond that, we know that, as mentioned, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate acts as a fuel, uh, and as such, a very efficient fuel with the production of energy molecules with less production of damaging free radicals. And so there are multiple uh, gene pathways that are, are activated. Uh, some of the longevity pathways seem to be activated as well. Um, so there are, again, multiple areas that are focused on that um, any one of which I think would be profound, but when taken as a group, I think represent a very powerful multi-pronged approach to changing gene expression, to changing cellular dynamics, that I think is ultimately very, very positive. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you also, and we're going to now go into the gut, because I know you wrote a great book called Brain Maker. Um, and really just dove into the impact of the gut microbiome and its role in helping to shape the brain and, and helping to kind of have this sort of uh, epigenetic impact on, on brain function. And so what have you seen? Let's, let's jump into that. And then also what have you seen with um, the ketogenic diet and lifestyle and how that helps shape the gut microbiome, which therefore then impacts brain health? I'd say first that one of the things we've observed is, yes, there are indeed some changes in the microbiota that are observed uh, in individuals on a high-fat, very, very low-carb, very low diet, a very low-sugar diet. And uh, I am not sure, uh, and the literature would support the idea that all of these changes may not necessarily be good ones. Mm. And I, I think it, to explain it uh, would be to say that one of the issues that is really of fundamental importance in individuals going uh, to a ketotic uh, uh, diet, ketogenic diet, is to ensure that they're getting adequate amounts of fiber. And we recognize that specifically as we talk about things like prebiotic fiber to nurture the gut uh, microbiota, uh, that these are carbohydrates. And I, and I think that because they are carbohydrates, uh, that people who are trying to be as uh, tight as they can in terms of you know staying on course with the ketogenic diet, they shun them, and uh, there's no reason for that because uh, you know for example prebiotic fiber by definition is uh, our complex carbohydrates that are not used by our our cells but are purely metabolized by our good gut bacteria to allow them to replicate to allow them to produce. Uh, metabolic products that are good for us, whether they are B vitamins or short-chain fatty acids, uh, including uh, butyrate, uh, which acts similar to the ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, I might add. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the, uh, an important explanation. Uh, but I think that you know, the truth of the matter is, as it relates to our an ancestral diets is one that would indicate that we were in ketosis a lot of the time but not all of the time. Mm -hmm. And for example, we know that in uh, bears, uh, there are dramatic shifts in, the, uh, in their uh, microbiome uh, related to seasonality that are, are seen 
certainly uh, as a consequence of the foods that they're eating, but also perhaps some of these changes that are taking place as a survival mechanism, not induced by the fact that suddenly uh, a bear is eating berries that have become ripe as opposed to having eaten salmon. What I'm saying is that we don't know who leads here. Uh, that it may very well be that the microbial changes that take place in the bear in comparison, uh, comparing a bear that is hibernating versus a bear that's out trying to double its body fat in, in the summer to uh, fall, uh, we don't necessarily know that the changes in the microbiome have happened because of the dietary change or that these changes are sort of naturally occurring changes with a huge shift in the microbiome allowing the bear to gain weight. Interesting. So it's always very important then to think about that. Are these changes that we are seeing in the microbiome uh, related to being on a strict ketogenic diet? And as such, uh, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, we, we, it's, it's nice to say a ketogenic diet, but what does it mean in terms of a very important component, and that is dietary fiber? So I think we have to control for that. And I think in terms of recommendations for your viewers, for example, uh, I think that I would say the biggest issue that needs to be addressed in people really jumping on the idea of going into ketosis is to make darn sure uh, that you've got more than adequate amounts of dietary fiber uh, involved in your selected diet. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's really one of the big differences between what we call a well-formulated ketogenic diet and just somebody that's, you know, out there just focusing on fat. And so, um, yeah, definitely getting good prebiotic foods. I said the only time that I, I, I will reduce fibers when people are really struggling with FODMAPs, those FODMAP groups. But other than that, you're right. And there's so many great low carb, you know, cause we talk about carbs really what we're the ones that we want to avoid in general are going to be your net carbs, that total carbs minus fiber. We want to make sure we're consuming that fiber because like you said, that's the fuel source for the microbiome. We pr produce the uh, butyrate from that, which reduces inflammation in our body. So it's so powerful. So let's go into some of your favorite ketogenic foods and prebiotic foods. And uh, so our viewers can understand really how to incorporate this into their diet. Well, in, in terms of prebiotic foods, um, I like uh, dandelion greens, chicory root, uh, Jerusalem artichoke, garlic, onions, yeah. leeks. These are all really good sources of yeah. prebiotic fiber. Uh, but truthfully, I add in a prebiotic supplement to my regimen every day, and that is made from uh, acacia gum. Mm. Uh, that's the uh, resin secreted by the acacia tree and harvested sustainably in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as uh, prebiotic fiber made from the baobab fruit. Uh, these are both available in health food stores. Uh, organic products are available because, you know, truthfully, you may not be eating enough uh, dandelion greens in a given day. And I think, you know, in comparison to our ancestors, uh, we're eating about maybe 5 to 10% of what our ancestors would consume in terms of prebiotic fiber. So um, I'd say that might well be the biggest issue in terms of diet that is so uh, underrated. You know, people look on a nutrition label, the macronutrients, carbohydrates, fat, and protein, and the micronutrients as well. But, you know, fiber, well, there's fiber. We need that because it's bulk. No, we need that because it's very, very active. It's not this inert stuff that's like cardboard. 
It's hugely yeah. important to nurture our microbiomes. Interventional trials have shown improvement in cognitive function in children, in asthma symptoms in children, for example, by simply giving them higher levels of prebiotic fiber. So it has a huge uh, net to throw in terms of uh, dealing with inflammation, dealing with autoimmunity, regulating the immune system, and dealing with uh, the metabolome, in, in regulating the good products that our gut bacteria are making to keep us help, healthy. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about the prebiotics in radishes, garlic, and onions? Because I know that when I consume those, I just feel so much better. My skin uh, seems to be softer and have better moisture. So when I consume those regularly, I feel great. Same thing with leeks. I feel really good, really good with leeks as well. What are your thoughts? Well, again, um, it takes us from uh, the sense of these being good foods for you in general, mm -hmm. uh, in taken in their entirety versus the fact that you're trying to segregate, segregate out the <laughs> fact that they have a lot of prebiotic fiber. Yeah. There are multiple reasons why garlic is a good food. Yeah. And it's very high in thiols. It's, uh, you know, it does uh, enhance detoxification. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, it is a wonderful source of prebiotic fiber. So each of the foods you mentioned uh, has its uh, particular pedigree in terms of uh, you know, issues that relate to it being a healthful choice. Yeah. Uh, but then again, you know, how often are you necessarily going to have your daily allowance of garlic, onions, leeks, uh, you name it. So uh, I, I think that, you know, making sure you get good prebiotic fiber is mm -hmm. super important. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And have you worked with people like, cause I know, you know, working with a lot of challenging autoimmune and gut cases, I found that for many of those individuals, and in my, in my past, I had irritable bowel syndrome. So there's certain types of prebiotics that I just, I just don't feel good with, right? And there's others that I respond, it's like a big change, right? I'm like, wow, that was really, really good. Have you had experience with that? One size does not fit all, that's yeah. for sure. I'd say of the prebiotic fibers, uh, I would say that the one derived from acacia gum is by far mm. and away uh, the most well-tolerated. You know, clearly when people try to buy a supplement, for example, FOS, inulin yeah. supplements, uh, I think you see at not, a, not a, a small number of people having difficulties tolerating uh, that sort of a bombardment or an intervention. So, uh, but you're right. Uh, one size absolutely does not fit all. Yeah. So really find the right prebiotic foods that seem to be working great for you. That would be the good recommendation. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. How about some recipes? I know you've, uh, you've done some cookbooks and this is a big thing that you do. And so how about some, some great keto style gut healing recipes that, that you eat? Well, on? gee whiz, uh, there's 150 of those in uh, the Grain Brain uh, cookbook. Yeah. Uh, there's 100 in the Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. Mm -hmm. So um, we've created quite a few uh, keto friendly recipes. Uh, and I have to admit that uh, Probably two or three times a week, I receive unsolicited yet another keto cookbook for you know a comment or whatever. And yeah. so there's so there's such proliferation of keto friendly cookbooks coming out. I think it's great because I mean a lot of these are written by people who have suddenly just had a life change yeah. and just you know see this as their calling. You know, go on a ketogenic diet, suddenly lose weight, regain their energy, mental clarity, you name it. Uh, improvement of, as you mentioned, autoimmune conditions, et cetera, and decide that this has been so uh, fundamental for them that they're going to go ahead and write a cookbook. Well, there are yeah. a lot of them out there now. I think it's a great thing. 
Yeah, there's so many great recipes out there, that's for sure. I mean, it definitely makes it so much easier than just kind of getting this knowledge, but not really knowing the application. What are some recipes, like what are some go-tos in your household? Well, I, I, you know, I think uh, the answer to that is probably not what you would expect, mm -hmm. uh, because the answer is the go-to for me is nothing. <laughs> yeah, fasting. Uh, you know, what is my typical breakfast? I don't, I don't eat breakfast, <laughs> and uh, that's what's on the plate. So by virtue of the fact that, you know, I don't eat till uh, two o'clock in the afternoon or one, whatever it may be, if I'm technically, not. Happy, technically, I'm, two o'clock then would be your breakfast, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I haven't eaten for maybe 16 hours or yeah. even longer. So that's what's on the plate. There's a great plate full of nothing. And I think, you know, people are always wondering, what, is, what do you, foods are you eating to, make, uh, to bring on your ketosis? And I think it's important to realize that one of the most important things you can do is to reduce what you're eating overall and yeah. the number. I mean, I don't know who invented eating three times a day. Uh, somebody one day said, I'm going to invent a thing and you're going to eat, people are going to eat three times a day. It's going to be a thing because it's not part of our heritage. We, yeah. ate, we would find food on the ground or killed an animal or something like that. Uh, so, you know, can you imagine our ancestors tracking down a gazelle and suddenly saying, well, noon, you're going to stop for lunch. Uh, you know, we're going to sit down and have a little lunch and then we'll pick it up where we left off you know, we were feasted famine, quite literally. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's really one of the most important things for me. And, you know, beyond that, I think vegetables um, are really important and underrated part mm. of a ketogenic diet. I think we need colorful, uh, varying in colors, vegetables, rich in the carotenoids, rich in dietary fiber, very low in carbohydrate, obviously steamed or sauteed. Uh, but, you know, that's very, very important. I think it's a fundamental. Uh, it's the most important part of the plate. Uh, yeah. I am a, uh, a carnivore, so I do eat some meat. Yeah. I eat much more fish uh, than meat. Uh, I eat eggs. I think eggs are a terrific mm -hmm. food. I don't oh, eat yeah. the shells, but we actually are now, have now looked at some recipes that include eggshells. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, this certainly flies in the face of... Um, of what we've been told over the years that if you eat eggs, you're going to drop over a, from a heart attack. Uh, and you know, the yolk is the best yeah, part. That's the where you part. have the best fat. Yes. And yet to this day, you go to a restaurant, you still see egg white omelet as a mm. healthy choice, you know, right. a, a health option. And I always like looking at uh, um, menus in restaurants because if you want to find the absolute <laughs> worst food on the menu, look at the kids menu. Yeah. Because that's oh, yeah. when you see the, the, the crap, you know, the fries with this and the hot dog and, you know, whatever, and, and a, uh, a soda. And I mean, why would that be? So they'll eat their dinner in the restaurant and not make a lot of noise. Uh, it's, it's certainly breathtaking. But times are changing. And we're yes. seeing really, you know, good restaurants starting to appear that yeah. understand that olive oil is a good food and avocados and good sources of fat and that lower uh, grains and lower carbs in general, and understanding the notion of net carbohydrates, like you mentioned earlier, I think yeah. is really very important. But adding fat to the meal is you know, critical. What it's I so, had yeah. lunch today uh, was uh, avocado yeah. with uh, some scrambled eggs and some kale uh, mm. with goat's cheese, and olive oil poured over everything, just yeah. you know, laid it on. Why do I do that? Well, it's fat, and I like to have most of my calories coming from fat. A, B, the PREDIMED study was very clear. 
If you are pursuing a Mediterranean diet, you will reduce your risk for dementia. But if you pursue the Mediterranean diet and add one liter of olive oil to your diet each week, you'll further reduce your risk of dementia. Mm. That's to me. I mean, I'm at risk. My father had Alzheimer's, so I do what I can. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's obviously olive oil is loaded with healthy fat, but also on top of that, it's got a lot of polyphenols. Um, I think you that those you know, two polyphenols um, may be the biggest part of the story. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that it's uh, not just because of the antioxidant activity of the polyphenols themselves, but how the poly polyphenols actually uh, influence uh, positive changes within the microbiome, mm. uh, influence their activity. So I think, you know, on multiple levels, uh, as well as the monounsaturated fats, uh, olive oil is a terrific addition to, yeah. to the plate. Yeah, and when you combine it with something like kale, like you had, you actually absorb more nutrients, synergizes. You absorb more. Than oh, that's right. You know, kale has certainly arrived, hasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so, you know, going back to the idea of feast and famine, um, how do you, do you apply that? I know for, you know, there's some people that are on this um, summit that are just a huge fan of, hey, ketosis is so good, let's just stay in that. Whereas others are fans of cycling out. I know personally, I'm a fan of implementing kind of some feasting in um, and trying, you know, in a sense, like it makes, to me, it makes it more sustainable. Number one, number two, it's, it's more ancestral. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we can learn from science. We can learn from uh, emulating our ancestors, sort of a paleo approach. <clears throat> and uh, we can learn from anecdote. And uh, I think there's value there. And so for me, uh, the, the feasting part never made me feel great. Yeah. Uh, I eat enough at a meal and I don't like to overdo it. Basically, because I, I don't feel great afterwards. Mm -hmm. I don't like to, yeah. I, I don't feel great when I'm stuck. Um, <laughs> As far as cycling, which I think is, uh, has, is, has merit, yeah. I know that there are various popular writers who are talking about uh, coming in and out of ketosis, and I think that probably is not the worst idea. I know that uh, Rob Knight, for example, has written about that recently, about you know, the idea that you know, that would emulate our ancestors because our ancestors did, in fact, have some uh, carbohydrates, even Paleolithic ancestors, um, would get some uh, carbs in the form of ripened fruit uh, in the late uh, summer yeah. and in the early fall. So, um, you know, that opens the door to having some more carbs that might pull you out of ketosis. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that's great input. I mean, and our ancestors typically, unless they were Eskimos, would, uh, would cycle out. And also, you know, if they did kill something, it was like they didn't have refrigeration, so they were going to eat as much as they possibly could. And then well, really interesting um, that, you know, what happens when you kill something mm -hmm. and you cart it around on your back for a, a, a few days <laughs> uh, is it starts to rot. And yeah. it starts to, uh, which is a good thing. Yeah. Because what yeah. does it mean? Teeming with organisms, and then you eat right. those organisms. Right. I mean, that's what fermentation is all about. Yep. And uh, as a matter of fact, you know, fermentation was uh, originally uh, developed uh, 8,000 years ago, not because people necessarily liked kombucha, but because it's a way of preserving food. When yep. you ferment, the, you know, when cheese was created, uh, when you fermented vegetables, when you created kimchi, 
it's a way of, of preserving food. So it, it, uh, it, you know, it's available yeah. to you longer. Absolutely. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I've thoroughly well, enjoyed, enjoyed this. It, David. Absolutely. And so tell us more about where, uh, where our listeners can find you, connect with you and, and get on your newsletter so they can get all your, your most recent work. Um, I'd say the best place to go is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Uh, you're right. We have, a, I believe, a really terrific uh, yeah. newsletter uh, that's free and goes out every week. I write it and um, do a lot of videos that we attach. Uh, so that's a good resource. Facebook, uh, we put a post every day, and it's David Perlmutter, MD. Um, books are on Amazon, and, uh, and that's basically what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're new to this concept and you haven't heard of Dr. Perlmutter, without a doubt, get on his newsletter, get his books. He is just a wealth of knowledge. He's got great practice, great insight and great practical application. So I want to really encourage you guys to do that. And, uh, and Dr. Perlmutter, I just want to acknowledge you again for your, just your influence over, you know, changing and shaping healthcare and moving us into this new uh, paradigm of lifestyle medicine. So I really just... Well, I, I sure appreciate hearing that. I mean, yeah. I, I will tell you that's the mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's always to light the single candle and not curse the darkness, yeah. to move things ahead in a very positive, loving way. And so I appreciate this opportunity to share time with you and, and get out my message. Thank you. Yes, you are so welcome. And if you, the listener, have enjoyed this interview, then I want to encourage you to consider owning the, the whole Keto Edge Summit for yourself. That way you get lifetime access to all the transcripts, all the files, all the interviews, and you can really resource this and go back to it at any time. And so if you would look into that, then um, we would greatly be honored and blessed by that. And so we will see you on a future interview. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.